Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. <laughs> Doing this race in a great conditions year, I think, um, where we had very favorable conditions, I think, you know, the water is still very cold. Um, the air is sometimes hot, right? Going from like cold water to hot all the time with neoprene on all of the kind of different things you're juggling to be racing this right is is really tough okay you people sit tight hold the fort and keep the home fires burning and if we're not back by dawn call the president you're going the wrong way what you're going the wrong way he says we're going the wrong way oh he's drunk how would he know where we're going yeah how would he know Thank you. Thanks a lot. Welcome to the Dark Zone Adventures and Podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. Episode number 87, our final episode for 2023. We hope that all of our fans have a fantastic holiday season and a wonderful and happy new year. We will see you in 2024. But today, one final episode for this year. Alyssa Kadesky, a human Swiss army knife, pro triathlete, Barclays racer, one water racer, podcaster, coach, FKT holder, the whole shoot and match. Alyssa was kind enough to come on to the show to talk about her experience. She's a great interview. She's a font of information. So much knowledge. We're glad you're here. Thanks for joining the Dark Zone. Enjoy your racing, and we will see you next year. Thank you to Jade Eagles from Wealth Garden Financial Services for sponsoring this episode. Jade is a fellow adventure racer who first started in Australia 15 years ago and recently completed the World Championship in South Africa. His other passion is helping individuals and their families establish a positive relationship with money and partnering with his clients to plan for a financially secure future. To learn more about Jade and his financial planning practice, The Wealth Garden, please visit www.thewealthgardenfs.com and drop him a note. That's www.thewealthgardenfs.com. As a listener of The Dark Zone, you know that we support Ascend Athletics. We encourage everyone to head over to ascendathletics.org and check out their new initiative called Invest in Her, an investment in the future of girls in places where access is limited. Ascend Athletics does a great job working with young women in Afghanistan and Pakistan through education, climbing, and other opportunities. We encourage all of our listeners to visit ascendathletics.org and check out Invest in Her. Thank you for being a listener, and thank you for supporting Ascend. And remember, Ascend pays nothing for this sponsorship. We like what they do and are proud to pass along word of their good work. Welcome to the Dark Zone and Adventuration Podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. We are joined today by Alyssa Gadeski. Alyssa is a pro triathlete. She's an adventure racer. She's been on the podium for the national championships. And she's been kind enough to join me here in the Dark Zone to talk all sorts of adventure racing. But I really want to talk about her recent experience at the one water race which was a very popular race she did it she has great stories from it i don't want to hear all about it Alyssa, welcome to the dark zone do me a favor spend a moment or two and tell the world about your experience with adventure racing and with all endurance sports hey brian um yeah thanks for having me i 
Gosh, let's see. My I first stepped foot in the adventure sports realm. Um, I guess it was around 2005. I was at the Naval Academy. And I mean, we could do a podcast on this on itself. So the very short version is I I ended up running the JFK 50 mile um, on a little bit of a whim, but it was kind of like a calculated whim uh, while I was there and loved it and literally never looked back, realized very quickly that, um, you know, endurance sports were a place I wanted to put myself in. So I did not stay at the Naval Academy for four years. I ended up transferring to the University of Virginia. Um, and from there, you know, it kind of life directed me, continued to direct me towards endurance sports. I found triathlon while I was there. Uh, you know, I moved to Baltimore after college and found a really great group of endurance athletes there where I really focused more on triathlon and Ironman and that sort of thing, but still was spending my time dabbling in ultra marathons and, and continuing to play in that arena as well. And by 2014, uh, I had pursued triathlon hard enough to realize that I wanted to go all in. And so that was when I, I left my corporate job at the time. I was working for AOL um, as a business analyst and left the corporate world went all in with training, racing, and, and coaching for triathlon and um, did that for the last decade or so, really. Um, and, you know, I really, you know, focused wholeheartedly on Ironman and, and triathlon for that first five years or so. And then kind of in these last five years, I've allowed myself a little bit more wiggle room to get back on the trails and find some more, um, adventure literally with adventure racing. Um, and then, you know, also chasing some fastest known times, FKTs and things like that through the last five years or so. So, um, it definitely, you know, renewed the, uh, idea in my head that I will be staying in, in the endurance sports world for, for some time to come. I think my triathlon time is winding down, but, uh, it was, you know, an ill-timed they didn't really consult me with the timing of the pandemic, it turns out. And so it uh, the pandemic happened, you know, right at a time in my career where I felt like I had maybe one last push to make. And, um, you know, after that kind of happened, it was I haven't had much motivation to get back into Ironman racing the way I was. Um, but during that pandemic period, my partner, Matt, and I, we had bought mountain bikes. We started getting into more of the off-road scene and, and trying to learn um, navigation more, you know, going to some Rogaine events, doing a lot of that. And we entered our first adventure race during that time, um, whenever races were were happening. I guess it was probably the year after it's maybe 2021 blur, or something. Right? Right. Right. It was pre-pandemic, <laughs> pandemic, and then all of a sudden we're doing things again. Yeah. And so really since then, you know, it, things have just been shifting. I've been shifting a lot more towards trail goals again, um, adventure racing and, and things like that. And uh, a couple of years ago, Matt and I were looking to kind of shake things up. He was looking for a different job and we ended up in New England. Uh, we ended up in Vermont, uh, the New Hampshire, Vermont area and upper Valley here. So it's been a great move for our love of endurance sports and finding more community within that. And so here I am, that's the two minute version. Tell the crowd about your FKTs. 
Yeah. So uh, in 2018, I set the female supported fastest known time um, on Vermont's long trail, which is 273 miles long. My time is just over five days. That one is still standing. Um, I, I feel like people are starting to get it on their radar. It'll be interesting to see what happens in this next season with it because people have been going for it a little bit. I, I do think there's time to shave off that one. Um, a couple of years after that, I headed to the Adirondacks, which Brian, you got to see parts of and set the uh, women's supported time there for the Adirondack 46 high peaks. And then two years after that, so 2022, I was in New Hampshire and set the, I actually set the overall supported fastest known time for the New Hampshire 48 high peaks. And that has since last summer, it was beat by a man. Um, so I hold, I hold the women's record still there. So just, just from a numbers game with the 46 high peaks that you did in 2020, do you remember your time? That was three days, 16 hours and a, a few minutes. And then New Hampshire was uh, three days, I want to say just under nine hours. So clearly you're no stranger to endurance sports and everything that goes with that. And I remember meeting you back at Rootstock Racing, um, race a two-day race to Stockville, which I want to say was 2018 or 19. It's, a, it's one big blur. Yeah, it is a big blur. I want to say 18 because I believe I had set the long trail record and then started thinking about the Barkley marathon. And, uh, I needed navigation skills for that. And so I, I want to say I, I duped Courtney into the, racing that with me in 2018, but anyone's, you know, Abby and Brent could have the final word on when we'll that let was. them add in the comments and you just invoke the word Barkley. So you have to talk a bit about your Barkley experience. Yeah. So I, I have been trying to get into Barkley really since the, the long trail, which is funny because, you know, pre long trail record, I, would have said, I never want to do Barkley. I don't understand it. That's not for me. And then post long trail, for whatever reason, I started to really start thinking about it because prior record holders on the long trail have been historically Barkley finishers. Um, there's a strong correlation there. And so that really just kind of got the wheels turning. Uh, I, I had felt like that navigation piece was just so kind of intimidating and scary, but I, you know, jumped into the Stockville. I started to just dabble a little bit and realized, hey, you know, maybe maybe that is something I can learn and maybe it's not so out of reach. So it did, again, thanks to the pandemic, it took quite a while to really make my way there. I started on the wait list and moved my way up. And then there were a couple times I actually, I was like pretty close. And then, um, I ended up getting in about 10 days before the race in, what was that, 2022? 20, 20, yeah, 22. That sounds that sounds yeah. correct, yeah. Um, and I had been kind of thinking it could happen. Like, you know, six weeks before, I really was moving up the, the wait list quite a bit and realizing that this could happen. And so I had trained, a, you know, a good bit for it. I think that race definitely would involve more training if I were to go again, but um, I was able to go and experience it, which was a very cool experience. I'm glad I glad I did that. I finished a loop and a third. Um, so that was exciting. And then I, um, we were there on a weather year. And again, you know, you tell people the weather in Frozen Head is really, really harsh and really crazy. And um, it is, it, 
really harsh and really crazy. And to be honest, I was, I was underprepared for that and I had to turn around. It wasn't safe for me to continue going on that second loop. So uh, that's when I made the call to, to turn around and come in. So with the, with the 18 years from, you know, 2005 to 2023, going into 19 years, there's a, a long, um, uh, a spectrum of things that you've done over time, right? You went through the endurance sports, the triathlon, you've made all, you've, you've, you've dipped your toe into all these different waters. Also, it should be noted to say that, you know, obviously I mentioned before you, you were nationals, right? You've, you've raced mm-hmm. in nationals, uh, one time in nationals or two times, one time, correct? One time out in, um, California, right? California. You were third out there in nationals. Yes. Yes. And it's worth pointing out too that before that is training for nationals. Myself, you, Pete Spagnoli, and Jim Mernon raced in Scotland and I tear in Scotland. And so clearly we all know that the get ready for a nationals race is race with Jim, Pete, and I. That was the best way to get you ready for that race and got you on the on the podium for that one. One hundred percent. Exactly. So anybody out there wants to get ready for a big event, come do a five day race with the three of us and you're guaranteed to do really, really well. There's a lot of correlation there. Um, when you when you made the transition, did you did you begin to suspect that that Barclays was in the was off in the distance and your triathlon, which I've I've taken part in tri, a lot of triathlon races also, the Ironman level. I always found that one one side effect of doing adventure racing, whether it be orienteering, whether it be that your work in the Adirondacks and the high peaks or adventure, whatever it is, is that once once the course becomes your decision, rather than follow the arrows that the race director puts out there. Every single race, marathon, half marathon, triathlon, I'm going to use the word boring, and I'm kind of lost for other words to use. But when they tell you where to go, it becomes more of a training event as opposed to a mental event because you have to have a map in your hands. Did you have that same experience when you kind of began to, you know, migrate away from triathlon? I think so. I think a little bit. I think, you know, I... I'm a competitive person. And so I almost now look at something like marathons and triathlons, you know, as like races and this, this is what they are, right? It's races where you purely can see how fast you can go, you know? And I, I wouldn't say I see that as necessarily boring because it has its place and it's fun in its own right. Right. When you like want to really push yourself to that limit and see what you can do. But there's there's something to be said about racing when you're seeing how fast you can go and also can you make the smartest decisions right can you read the map a little bit better you know i think when you get those layers of um the speed component with the intellectual component and kind of the problem solving component it becomes it just becomes a lot more fun to me um and i think i think sides a lot with the the fact that I did have a decade racing Ironman where my head was down and I was just trying to go as fast as I could at that. You know, I, I got that out of my system for the most part. I still like to jump in and out of a 5k or a marathon, you know, but I think, you know, as you, I don't know, maybe it's as you get older, right. You start to like look for those other components to test yourself. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the before the triathlon heads crushed me in the comments, I don't want to say that triathlon is boring. God forbid I would say that. <laughs> but what, the point that I want to make is the idea that to your to what you're saying is, is that when the course is laid out in front of you, all you have to do is get from point A to point B as fast and as hard as you can. But when you layer in adventure racing, orienteering events, then all of a sudden the mental component gets a lot 
a lot more intense. And therefore, there's another layer. The, the Venn diagram of success gets more complex. And so I think you're right about that. And it's been interesting to see your transition as you kind of you've thrown yourself through the sport. And I've had a chance to see it up close. You know, the FKT, I had a chance mm-hmm. to, to see you do there. We spent time together when we were in Scotland, which was a fantastic experience. And I know that Itera has transitioned from James Thurlow um, over to Paul McGreal. And we're looking forward to Itera is a light race going into 24 again, but that should come back as a full five-day race eventually. This past year, you took part in the one water race. So another mm-hmm. another permutation of, of, of your life, right? Another if you if you think about it up on the up on the wall, there's all these different things that you do you've done over time, right? You've done the marathons, the triathlons, the adventure racing, the orienteering. One water race is a is a another brand new beast. And I've and I've seen the media you've done for it, and I've seen some of the videos about it. And I have a sneaking suspicion that there's something about this type of racing that really kind of pokes at you that you really are intrigued by it. Break down what 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 one water is in the race that you took part in. Yeah, so one water race is a swim run event. Um, swim, swim run is exactly what it sounds like. It's swimming and running. Um, and there are there are swim run is actually quite popular over in Europe. Um, a lot of times the course is defined, the course is marked. Uh, we have swim run in the U.S. With, where that's the case too, where the course is marked. Um, you know, there's a range of distances. There's kind of sprint distance. There's ultra distance, things like that. Um, but typically they range from probably two hours to six hours, seven hours, maybe, um, on average where, I mean, you literally are swimming and running. You are wearing a wetsuit of some kind, right? They have special swim run, run wetsuits. You're allowed to be swimming with a pull buoy and paddles. Um, but the, the catch is, is that everything you swim, run, sw- swim with, you have to run with. So you're also carrying that gear as you run. It is generally a partner sport. So there are sometimes solo divisions, but generally I think, you know, similar to adventure racing where, um, you know, they have the the premier kind of team mixed division. I think that's pretty similar with swim run where definitely the teams are the premier divisions to be doing it. Um, and historically the swim run world championship is Attilo. I'm saying it with my full on American accent. If you ask a Swede that they will, they will pronounce it slightly different, but um, and that is a, that's a beast of a race. So that's typically in like late August, early September, every year has been happening for a long time. I want to say it's about 40 kilometers of running, like 30 or 40 kilometers of running. It's a, maybe even more, it's a lot of running, um, a lot of swimming. I want to say, gosh, 10 to 15 K of swimming in that it's, um, a long day. So that one is definitely on the lengthy side and, um, so that's existed, you know, for for a while. And then a few years ago, um, the the man Thomas, who kind of is the race director, the creator, the the mastermind behind the one water race, he got to thinking. He's a Swedish uh, man, and he was looking at the archipelago on, of Sweden and kind of just got to thinking. I wonder if you could swim run the entire thing. Can you start at the nor- northern point? and swim run through the islands um, to this other point. And, you know, if you are an adventure racer listening and you haven't really thought about swim run before, pull up a map of the Swedish archipelago and just take a look. And it is like made for a sport like swim run, right? I mean, there's thousands of islands. The distance between them often isn't too long. And they, it's just, you could easily swim and run between them. It's really cool. And so, 
Um, Thomas had been an endurance athlete, you know, he's been in the endurance sport realm for a long time and had this idea. And then actually, you know, during the pandemic, he, he got a group of people together to see if that was possible. And so they actually did kind of a, a three day run of it. Right. I think they did a big, a big chunk. And so I should say, you know, when you're looking at a map to from the northern point of the Swedish archipelago to the southern point, it ends up being about 200 kilometers um, of of running that would ensue. So 120 miles, give it give or take. And then, you know, 50 to 60 kilometers of swimming. If you were to go in like, you know, a relatively direct ish route, um, you know, that's what it would entail. So so he gathered a group of friends. They successfully, you know, they were I shouldn't say they were like just random friends. They were some of the most notable swim runners. Right, right. <laughs> in well, by virtue of his life, he, he has the most right. speed dial. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so they tested it out and they did like a three day version of it, which, um, you know, they slept not a ton, I don't think. But, you know, they weren't they weren't racing it. They were just kind of seeing, can we can we cover this whole distance? And they did successfully. And so that really got the the wheels turning for Thomas to make this into a race for the top endurance athletes in the world. And, you know, he wants to gather um, his vision is to gather teams that are, you know, worldwide and competing kind of for their countries and put them out in the Swedish archipelago and start them at the northern point and see who can make it to Landsort, the southern island, that lighthouse. Right. Um, and, you know, he wants the race to be done continuously. Um, he, you know, doesn't want people he wants to truly see what the limit of human capacity can be right to how hard they can push, how fast they can do this. Um, the, you know, other kind of notable feature of this race is that there is no course to follow. So he puts out checkpoints and um, you are navigating by map and compass through the checkpoints and, you know, collecting your new maps along the way as you get to them. And that's how you make your way through the island. So he is kind of playing, you know, a bit of like the Hunger Games, right? Kind of creating the course. I think some of that is happening like, you know, as it unfolds, if it has to, to make sure that it's safe, to make sure people are, you know, moving. It's not way slower than he expected, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, there have been now three iterations of it. The first year was kind of a quieter test run. And then in uh, 2022 was the first really big year of it where uh, the USA had a team go. And then uh, 2023 this year was when I was there racing on team USA. And there were, there were seven teams racing with us this year. And each, each team was a country. Uh, give or take. So the, a couple you know, some got mixed. There was like one Canadian, Swedish, Australian team, I think. But for the most part, you know, people, um, it was it was by country. It sounds like the the Thomas, the, the race organizer, he, he's he's smart enough to realize that viewers will identify with national teams. Right. So he's able to so here's USA. Here's team this. Here's team that. Um, how many people on the team? So there are three athletes kind of swim running um, in one water, and there is 
a very, very important fourth member of your team who is your support crew. And so they are on the safety boat that meets you, you know, at the start and finish of every swim and kind of they meet you on the other side of the island. They're again, like, and that's part of the, you know, quote, fun of it, right, is you're working off of maps. So you're literally marking where you're hoping you're going to end up on the other side of the island. The safety crew has their boat captain and, you know, tells them and they zip around and, and try and get there for you to give you your gear on the other side of the island. But, um, you know, that, that there are three swim runners and then that fourth person is doing more jobs than I could probably name in this show. And, 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 <laughs> and so, so basically that job is their, their, their mother hen. Right. They're making mm -hmm. sure you eating or drinking. Are they, are they allowed to help with navigation? They are. So they can plan, you know, they can plan the the maps for you. Um, they are on the boats during the night. And so there's like uh, they're like they're literally shining like a spotlight <laughs> for the swimmers who are just in the dark sea um, of where to swim to. So that's very helpful for navigation. Um, but yeah, they they definitely are playing a big role in navigation. And as much as they can prep maps and kind of take a look at that stuff for you is is very helpful. For the 2023 experience that you had, and we'll get into the results. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Going into the race itself, did you know the the distance and how much time you'd have to complete it? Like, is it 24, 48 hours? Was it three days? Like, what was the overall? Or was it just until, is it that kind of Hunger game style? We're going to start now and we're done when we're done. It's uh, a little bit of everything. So we knew that the course would close at midnight on Thursday. And we started Tuesday morning, I guess it was. Um, so all you know, day Tuesday, like all day Wednesday, and a good chunk of the day on Thursday. Mm -hmm. right, so two and a half yeah. days, 24, 48. We'll give it 60 hours or so. The course would be open. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that... You know, we knew we knew the course was going to close by midnight and he so Thomas the first year in 2022, gosh, the winners came in, I want to say around I forget if it's 40 hours. Yeah, I think it was like around 40 hours. It might have been a little longer, but um he he basically wanted to make it a little bit harder than it was the first year, right? And so because yeah, why because why not? <laughs> right. Exactly. He's, you know, he looked at the, the finishers and was like, no, they don't look tired enough. I think we can push them more. And so he did. He, you know, did redesigned the course, redesigned the checkpoint. So it was going to be more, you know, still about 200K of, of running and then about more like 60 to 70K of swimming was what he was estimating um, for the full course this year. And so. By the way, those are crazy uh, numbers. I'm sorry. Let's just, let's just pause for a second. I mean, it's a lot of swimming. That's a lot. That's a lot of swimming. It's a, yeah. I mean, I mean, the running alone. I mean, let's not let's not get past the running too quickly. I mean, holy cow! Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a lot of swimming. It's a lot of swimming, and I really think that can't be understated because there's you know route choices you make along the way to to either give yourself more or less swimming. But when you're looking at, you will be doing 60k of swimming regardless. You know, it's a big pill to swallow for sure. And and, and also as I'm, I'm wrapping my head around those numbers, right? Cause you know, you, you live in this world and you talk about these five day races, 10 day races, and we kind of normalize it culturally as adventure racers, but catching our breath there and think about those, those, those numbers for a second, going into 200 K of swimming, 200 K of running and 60 K of swimming. And on top of that, it's not like uh -huh, a boring triathlon. I take that back. It's not, it's like you have to, you have to plan your route 
around the, so you'll get a map and you're standing on a shoreline and there's, and uh, if, if anybody's home, you're looking at a, a map of the archipelago, there's literally thousands. That was not hyperbole. And you have to stand on a shoreline and say, okay, I listen, here's the map. I think we want to go there. And if I remember correctly, because I, I saw some of the video that's out there, and I'll definitely link the video in the show notes. It's not like you swim to an island and the flag is there. You might need to get out of the water, go across an island, get back in the water and go on to another island. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think between each checkpoint, you know, it's it's hours and hours. So you're traveling potentially 5, 10, 20 islands, right, between checkpoints. And so um, the and what you're really navigating against on, on things is private property. So the archipelago is an amazing place because it they have I think they have Swedish term for it. But basically it's like, you know open land, like public land access mm -hmm. is a thing there, but there is some private property that you have to be avoiding. And so, yeah, you're, you're swimming across and you're seeing a house and you're like a dock and you're like, man, that dock would be nice to pull myself up on. But instead we have to swim, you know, 50 meters to the right side where there's like a slimy rock where we're going to try and pull ourselves out of the 55 degree water and like get out. Right. So, um, it's, it, again, it really can't be understated how, how difficult it can be to be in, uh, you know, doing this race in a great conditions year, I think, um, where we had very favorable conditions. I think, you know, the water is still very cold. Um, the air is sometimes hot, right? Going from like cold water to hot all the time with neoprene on, all of the kind of different things you're juggling to be racing this, right, is is really tough. And so, and this year too, um, he instituted an eight hour rule. And so what that meant was that with the leaders, you know, teams had to stay within eight hours of the leaders. Otherwise you would get pulled from the course. And mostly that was like logistics and safety, right? Because you start getting spread across yeah, this. The, 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 uh, the snake of the race gets too long. Yeah. And so, you know, he wants it to be competitive. He really wants people to be racing and going for it. And they go above and beyond to make the safety factor very high. They're, they take very good care of the athletes out there. And so really to do that, you know, this this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because you have to I mean, I'm, first thing, so I, when you said before he wants to test a limit of human capacity, <laughs> I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit because that sounds like hyperbole. That sounds like what a race director says. You know, I, I remember I was one time I was uh, attending. I was for, as a Father's Day gift to my child and I did uh, one of my kids did, a, did an obstacle course race. One of the, one of those one of those things. And I remember before the race that the the, the, the hype man in the crowd was talking using that kind of language. You will leave mm -hmm. here a different person. And I was like, dude, I'm running up a ski slope and getting muddy. Like, I get it. Like, don't. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Um, but it really sounds like he's legit. Like he means it when he talks about it because those distances alone. And on top of that, all of the all of the centers you have to call upon your navigation. You have to call upon your athleticism, cardiovascular. You have to manage the cold. You have to manage the team. Mm -hmm. You have to manage the sleep. You have to manage the nighttime, the, the daylight and all of that. Like walk us through that experience, because it sounds like five day adventure racing, but kind of like on steroids. And the idea, like it's, it, it's, it gets a lot more intense. Yeah. I mean, I think when I have reflected on it, I think honestly, one of the things that really sets it apart as like a true test of physical capacity is like the swimming, right? I mean, the swimming, swimming is just such a, you know, and that, that's part of why I like it too, because it's such a pure form of human movement. And as I started getting into swim run, I, I, 
totally drank the Kool-Aid because it is next level cool to run right now you're running and we did training runs here in Vermont. We went to Virginia beach and with a teammate and did training there and in Florida. And it's like next level fun to feel like you have the skills and the ability to go for a run, but carry some stuff and then get to the edge of land and be able to continue moving right. with just your like human parts. Right. And make way and travel across the water to the next piece of land that you see off in the distance that you get to. And then you get out and you get to explore over there. Right. But I think that swim factor, swimming is, swimming's a huge barrier, right? I mean, it's a huge barrier in triathlon. It's, it, there's a lot of obstacles to being able to swim, being able to swim really well, um, being comfortable in cold water, being comfortable in neoprene, like all of those things, you know, are really just, you know, a part of the challenge. Um, it's also a part of the privilege, I guess we could say too, but, um, you know, when you put swimming in the mix of this, I think so many endurance athletes are comfortable pushing themselves on land. And when you ask them to, you know, raise the bar by doing it on water, I think it really does. I mean, we saw from the teams that were the team that was successful and the teams that were close to being successful that, I mean, it raises the bar. Like those athletes, I I just think that there's probably not many humans on earth that could compete against them on um, in pure, a pure physical contest. Right, because when we talk about being comfortable in water in the context of racing, we're usually talking about either a controlled swim, like during a triathlon, or talking about being on some sort of boat, right? Mm-hmm. I'm comfortable in the water. Well, yeah, because right. there's a kayak between you and the water. Of course you're comfortable. But right. in your event there, uh, logistically speaking, you, you get your in neoprene, you get to the edge of the land, you want to get in the water. Shoes? Do they go in your suit? Do you keep them on? Do you swim with them on? Like where? Do, like do you have to carry all your? Because I'm assuming you can't give gear to your support person to give back to you. Um, you can toss gear and bags back and forth. So okay. there can be there can be that. Um, but this is a race. Right. <laughs> this is. I mean, the best swim runners in the world are not even pausing as they are entering the water. And they are not pausing as they exit, right? right? They are moving nonstop. One water is a little bit different because you are maybe taking a break to eat, grab fuel, you know, get maps and and that kind of thing. But in terms of, for the most part, like gear, you are where, you know, you're running in your wetsuit, you keep your shoes on your feet, you are running, carrying the paddles, you just flip them around when it's time to go, right? The pole buoy has this nice little thing you like fasten on an elastic so that it goes right back, you know, to where you can be and running with it. You're running with goggles around your neck. You're stuffing your swim cap in your top. Like, you know, you're just basically, you get 200 meters from the shore and you start being like, all right, guys, let's get ready to go. And you're just putting your cap on while you're running, getting the goggles ready. And you're trying to just get in the water as fast as you can. Um, again, one water, you know, with the length is different. Also with the cold water, And the length of time you're in the cold water is very different because, and you're swimming overnight, right? So that overnight swimming does require quite warm winter, like winter swimming gear, I guess you could say. And so that does take a little bit more time. You're putting on two wetsuits, you know, you're, you're having to pull a wetsuit on over your wetsuit. Um, You're getting like the full um, like head sleeve gloves, booties, like maybe some of that on, depending on, on exactly how cold things are. But Again, the less you have to do that, the better. And you watch the Swedish teams, you know, the Australian team, um, they are often, you can just tell they're willing to be 
a little bit more uncomfortable for the sake of the speed than some of the other teams. What about nutrition? Do you carry your food? Do you eat food on a shorter line? Do you, how do you do that? Cause I mean, obviously yeah, your, your, your caloric output is high. I mean, it, there's a lot mm-hmm. there. With I mean, the swimming too. Yeah. I right. mean, you yeah. just, we just want to burn through calories. Right. So similar to adventure racing, actually, I would say like you're eating on the move, um, a bit as much as you can. You, you know, some teams did it where like their crew would kind of hand them a backpack and then they would rotate who was carrying the backpack and hand out the fuel from that as they got moving on the Island. It depends a lot of time, you know, if it's a big Island or a small Island, a big Island, you could be running 10 kilometers on, um, a small island could be a 200 meter bushwhack, but if it's really thick, you know, you need your hands, you're not going to be able to, to kind of, um, you know, be eating a lot there. So depending on the timing and stuff, your crew might've also made you a meal, something like that. You might be kind of knowing you're taking a little bit of a longer break to eat that while you look at maps or something like that. What was your, during the 23 race, what was your, your longest single swim during it? Our longest, I think we did a 4k swim. Um, and then we did, we did two 3k swims really close together with like probably a less than a mile in between them. So that was pretty long too. Um, for, to complete one water, you know, one of the notorious challenges of that is that just prior to the most Southern few islands, um, there's a, a giant swim, which, you know, if you, are straight on and have good nav for that. It's a 10 K swim basically, or maybe not a 10 K, maybe seven K or something, but it's, it swims like a 10 K. Right. And it's a long, long swim, um, through a shipping channel. And so you're, you're out in the middle of, of the water for that one. I'm looking at the map right now. And for those who are at home, if you, if you go to Google maps and you, you go to, you could clearly see the shipping lines that run right past that, that huge gap near the end. And what's interesting about doing those big open water swims. And a lot of us have been there. It's amazing how claustrophobic it feels out in the open. Yeah. I mean, you, my strategy for it was like, I just turned my brain off. So you in swim run, you're swimming tethered together. So you're actually, you're tied to your teammates, which is really cool. It makes you feel very safe. (laughs) Um, And I was swimming third. So I had, I was, my job was to literally just stay as close to the feet of the person in the middle as I could. And you know, not stop moving my arms. Like that was my job. Right. So and to stay warm. And so, um, I, I would turn my brain off. I would just kind of just think about moving my arms, kicking my feet, right. Like a little bit and just keeping myself not thinking about the fact that, yeah, what the water could be closing in on me. Cause it does feel like that. A yeah. We bit. had that same to, to, to reminisce about our experience when we were in Scotland, we had that via Ferrata which was late at night and it was, we were exhausted and we were tired and, and it was dark and cold. And all you had to do was just do the climb on the thing right in front of you. Right. Don't pay, the fact that you're, you know, a hundred meters in the air, whatever it was, and it's scary and you have to know and go and back and forth. The fact that you were just doing that, that's all you had to focus on. Yeah. I mean, and that's the only way through it. Right. I mean, one step at a time, one, one swim at a time, one Island at a time, same concept um, that carries over. It's just, yeah, you would be doing it for 60 hours. Who was your, who are your 2023 teammates? I raced with Jared Shoemaker and Steve Keller and Kristen, whose last name, why am I like Smith? <laughs> I'm blanking on that. Kristen Smith. Um, we span the East coast. Like I'm up here. Steve's in the mid Atlantic. Kristen's in North Carolina. Jared's down in Florida. So we had, we were really East coast heavy team USA. Um, and it, it was fun. Um, I think we all brought our own strengths to, 
give it a good go. And we put in a lot of time to prepare. We did some team camps and stuff like that. Um, but it's, yeah, it wasn't our year. Wait. It just wasn't our year. So what, what were your results? How did it go overall for you? We ended up, let's see, we stopped around 36 or so hours in, I want to say, maybe a little bit longer, 38. And um, it was the eight hour rule. That's what so it was. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. We got, we got pulled by that. And um, I have to say, you know, Thomas cares about the athletes so, so much. And it was Jared's second year there. It was Kristen's second year there. And he met us maybe like three or four islands, you know, before they, they, we ultimately stopped and we knew, I mean, I think we were still like a minute or two over the cutoff. Right. And they gave us a pep, you know, gave us pep talk. He was like, I want you guys to do this, like dig deep, you know, and sent us off for that last little push. But um, unfortunately that was going into nighttime. Everything slows down at night, very similar to adventure racing. And uh, we just, we couldn't pull it out. When you saw him was like the Grim Reaper. Like, if you're talking to Thomas, you're like, oh, man, I don't want to see the race. That's no, not good. And he, again, it is like Hunger Games. Like, he, like, drops in. I mean, there's thousands of islands. And right. he knows exactly where each of his athletes are at any given time. And he's watching the t- numbers he knows. And they zip him over there. And he's there. And it's that one's not a good sight to see him. Any other time is a great sight time yeah. to see him. Yeah. That's like if you're doing if you're doing a five-day adventure race and you're out on a big paddle and there's a boat rushing towards you. <laughs> it's either it's – either, there's three things. Either it's an emergency – you're in trouble or it's the press taking photos. It's one of those three things. If a boat's coming right at you, you're on a kayak, something's going on. Right. And that's what it was. So as you, as you compare this, this experience to all the other stuff that you've done, you know, and it's and rating events is a, is a fool's errand, right? Cause they're all so different in their own aspect. But what did you, from your triathlon endurance adventure racing orienteering experience, which, which of those centers did you have to call on the most for your success? Like what, like what really did you have to lean on? Um, that's a good question. You know, I, I think for sure I was, I was heavily leaning on probably like the multi-day FKTs I've done. Um, and then the team dynamics stuff that I've really learned, um, through adventure racing. I mean, that racing with a team is so interesting, right? Right. I mean, it's been there. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's and it every single time you're, you know, on a team with a new group of people, it's a different dynamic. There's different kind of things to read and and everything. And um, that's definitely what has drawn me to adventure racing and that sort of thing. And so, you know, I was really leaning heavily on knowing that I do really well with sleep deprivation. You know, I was really heavily (laughs) just kind of confident in myself about that to get through the 60 hours. And so, you know, I knew that I knew my nutrition was strong from the multi-day efforts I've done. And so I just kind of packed that into like my confidence backpack and then really just tried to, you know, dig into the experiences I've had so far with adventure racing to bring out the best of the teammates, you know, in times when I could. Um, And I think, I think that was, you know, my role on the team. I think one water is a race where, you know, in adventure racing on your team, you definitely have roles and one water is no different. You have, you know, your lead swimmer, your lead navigator and things like that. And, um, that's, you know, for, 
I was not the lead swimmer. I was not the lead navigator. And so I definitely saw my role as just being the strong all-arounder to kind of like maybe step into those roles as needed, but in and out, right? I was never going to only wear that hat. Right. And to draw this back to adventure racing, it's the idea of, of knowing your role, right? And fulfilling your role. And not everybody can be the lead thing, right? And therefore... There are roles that you play in a team where your job is to sit back and pay attention. And we, I did another recording recently where we were talking about the, the, the pressure that's on a navigator during a race. That a navigator has to has to physically be present because you have to keep up with the team. And mentally, they're a whole other level, whoever he or she might be, whole other level in terms of like their exhaustion they're going to have. And so your job as a teammate is to sort of stay in the background and kind of keep an eye on them, but also on the big picture sort of things because they get so focused on those maps. And so mm-hmm. to your point, knowing your role inside of a team is the way to go. L- looking back on the experience, looking back on the team dynamic and and the, the the sleep and the food and the cold and the equipment, what was the area that you think that if if you do this again, and I'm curious if you if you plan on doing it again, what what dial do you have to turn a bit higher to do better? Yeah, I mean, I honestly I think the speed is like is the factor. I think um I, you know, our team definitely had a bit of a disadvantage because I went into this year with a relatively serious knee injury that, um, you know, we all decided we would see how we did with me racing on that knee injury, but it definitely, you know, I don't think we ever felt like it really held us back, but it certainly didn't push us forward. Right. right? And so, um, because of that, I think our just mentality to around the speed factor of the race was taken away. We just weren't going to be able to really push the way we had hoped we would. So that was that, you know, and I can't under, like, you have to give credit where credit is due. The Swedish teams are really freaking fast. Right. Right. They just, <laughs> the Australian so the team package, right? is really freaking they fast, quickly, right? They eat quickly. They, they just yeah. go. Right. And I mean, you know, so that speed factor is, is really just huge. And then I think the navigation, uh, being comfortable navigating on the archipelago and navigating with the water, navigating with the land terrain out there. It's super unique. It's um, super like it caught me off guard with how difficult it was to traverse the islands. You know, I kind of thought it's an island. You had, you know, we're going south. We just follow the coastline if we have to. Right. It's it's not that simple. Um, there's some really thick, dense areas out of bushwhacking where you, where you will swear you're in some like forest that is, you know, nowhere near water. And so um, I think those are two things that really, you know, I feel like the fitness generally was, was probably there, the nutrition and the preparedness for sleep deprivation and all that was there. But, um, but those two things, I think I would want to work on. Um, and you know, I won't be going back for 2024. Uh, I did have knee surgery on, on the injury and I'm just, uh, trying to take some time to really make sure I rehab it properly and come back, come back strong. And, um, but I would, I would love to go back again and give it another go. I think it's definitely a race that has stayed in mind and has me, you know, really wanting to go back and, and put some closure to that one. Yeah. It's always always tough. First of all, I think the eight hour rule is so, um, it's so interesting. Right. Because you never think about your performance. I mean, you can miss a binary cutoff and but the other teams have no bearing on that cutoff. Right? Mm-hmm. If you have to be at a, a transitionary by three o'clock in the afternoon and you get there at four o'clock and that's on you. But right. if it's Eviterade or if Safit or Estonia is having a really, really good race, it's like, come on, guys, slow down. And there's a hundred thousand dollar prize purse at this race, Brian. <laughs> and so the pot is split between the top three teams, right? That finish. Right. And so 
absolutely is it in the mind of the teams that know what they're doing, right? Let's drop the riffraff. More money for ourselves, right? right, right? right. Go out hard, then settle in, cruise for the last day, right? I mean, that's 100% what some people are thinking and how they're going to race it. And you are at the mercy of that. And it is what it is. I personally think it adds a really fun dynamic to the race. I think that, you know, when they're really looking for uh, experienced endurance athletes who should be able to play that game. And I think that game does make it a bit more fun. I just, I I just, once again, I know the permutation in racing, right? Right. When you think you've heard it all, next thing you know, there's a guy, there's Thomas, you know, having you race across the archipelago. I mean, it's, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, Yeah. It's also worth being said too, that aside from all your individual accomplishments, you're also, you're a very successful coach. You work with a lot of athletes very successfully. Tell us a bit about your, your, your coaching experience, who you work with. Um, I know personally, I've seen it in action. I've seen what you've done for other racers. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I have been coaching. I coach uh, with Biscay Coaching uh, under my own coach and the head coach of our coaching company, Hillary Biscay, who is a Ironman champion, Ultraman world champion. Um, and we coach athletes of all ages, abilities, all everything. Um, personally, I have been doing it for the last 10 years. And I definitely started coaching more focused on triathletes and, you know, athletes swim biking and running. And then as my own career has evolved, I definitely coach athletes who are looking to do mountain adventures, trail running, adventure racing, all sorts of multi-sport kind of things. Um, and it's, it's really rewarding. It definitely keeps me, you know, we talk about the intellectual side of racing being appealing to me and this definitely appeals to that intellectual brain that I like to tap into every now and then still, because, you know, keeping a mom with four kids kind of with structure and fit to be able to jump into a, you know, a half marathon or a 10 K anytime she wants to do is really fun. And then, you know, helping a 20 something elite triathlete try and kind of make their way in that world and see how fast they can be is like, you know, two different ends of the spectrum, but, um, working with, with all of that is what I love to do. As you're, as you're, you're coaching, as you, uh, you know, you got, you start triathlon during, and you probably coached in there, the adventure race coaching, are you, are you dipping more into that now that you've done that discipline so successfully with the podium finishes and the, and the five day races and, the, and, and the idea of doing one water race, are you working with more and more people on the adventure racing side too? And how has that adjusted your approach to coaching? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I'm lucky that my boyfriend, Matt, I, I coach him and I have coached him for several years. And so, you know, he often is a guinea pig for me as I'm, I'm figuring out some things and kind of, uh, you know, working out what my magic formula will be for the, for a new sport or something like that. And so as we have, you know, been racing adventure racing more, I've been able to see what works and, and what doesn't not only with myself and my own program, but with his. And, um, I, I have worked with a handful of adventure racers who, um, you know, adventure racing is funny because it's like you, on some levels, it's up to the athlete, right. Of how good they want to be, of how much they're going to hone certain skills, because it is a pretty skill heavy at times sport, you know, like learning, the paddling, right? You can make someone super fit and they can jump into a paddle and do pretty good, right? But like to really be like top level, right? You're going to have to have different conversations with them. So I, I do love that adventure racing is something that's available for people who maybe 
have been doing Ironman and are a little burnt out and just, you know, want to try something new. Um, and I think it's fun to be like, okay, with that fitness of Ironman, I promise you, you will survive. You will thrive really in adventure racing. You know, the skills you can worry about kind of down the line and develop those if you do want to get into AR a bit more. But if you're just looking to have a little bit of fun for a season or something, give it a shot. You know, if you have been running half marathons and marathons, right? You've been dabbling in triathlon, you're absolutely have the fitness to do some adventure racing. Yeah, I agree with that. And and as I, as through the dark zone and through the podcast and the feedback I get from listeners, a lot, a lot of listeners that come over are people who follow a trajectory that you follow. And I followed myself, the fact that you did mm -hmm. the endurance sports, you checked off a lot of boxes there. And then you heard about this thing, adventure racing off in the distance and you began to poke at it. And then the transfer of skills, the physical skills has carried very nicely endurance towards adventure racing. And then from a coaching perspective, you can help to turn those dials up and down. Right. Because mm -hmm. the, the, I was I was on another interview. And we were talking about I was interviewing uh, Santiago, who's the race director for this year's world championship in Ecuador. And we're talking about how there's 100 teams in the race. And of the 100 teams in the race, only really I mean, there's really seven to 10 that are fighting for podium spots. Right. And so now mm -hmm. you have 90 percent of your teams are not going to be on top of the podium. And the point that he made was, was that, well, if you come in 50 in the 50th place in the world championship, think about the fact that there's a four or five hundred racers. And you've now done the adventure racing where you've completed the adventure racing world championship. Whereas like a marathon will have 50,000 people in it. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden it's a, it's a really special thing to go in the race in a world championship and come in 25th, 50th, even 75th, having done that compared to the rest of the world. I think what coaching does coaching enables you to, to, while we all want to win, that's a really, really, really tight top of that triangle. And what a coach can do, a coach can let you enjoy the experience better when you're out there so that you can move faster, enjoy the course more and work on sleep deprivation, nutrition, training, fitness, teamwork, all of that. Because as we all know, adventure racing is a multidimensional sport. And if there's someone kind of chirping in your ear trying to help you out, it gets going to be a lot harder. Yeah, it's so hard to like maintain kind of that bigger picture look when you're balancing multiple sports, right? And you, you know, having, again, a little bit of experience to understand how much work you can put in for paddling versus biking and, and trekking and stuff like that. And just kind of how that all can translate to each other. It, it's always helpful to have someone else in your corner to be working on that with you, you know, and, um, and like any endurance sport, right, you're gonna train and you're gonna get super tired, and you might not make the best decisions if you're if it's up to you, you know, so having someone maybe push you a little bit more, can be really helpful yeah. for a lot of people too. I think also too, and to draw the correlation back to your experience in the water, all you had to do was focus on the the, the feet in front of you for that that's for that swim. When you work with a coach, and I worked with a coach very very successfully in, in both in, in cycling and in long distance running. And what I found is that when a coach who you trust and who you know gives you a good plan, you just have to do that plan, and you're kind of subbing out the thinking. You know, and I, mm -hmm. I you know, there's an expression when it comes if 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 you are your own lawyer, you have a fool for a client. Right. And so the idea, like if you're your own coach, you have, you have a fool for a client, like you need to sort of be involved in that. And some people, I think, and I'm curious as your thoughts on this, is that they mix up having a, a, a group that they train with, with having a coach. Like if those are two separate things. They are. Yeah. And I mean, for the most part, you know, most kind of local training groups and stuff are awesome, right? It's a 
way to get social interaction. It's a plus fitness, right? In one fell swoop. It's a way to meet these people, potential teammates for your team, right? Those kinds of things are great. But uh, most of those coaches aren't taking into account that, you know, Susie Q has a two-year-old and, you know, can only exercise X amount of time a week. And, oh, also that two-year-old was up you know, crying and being sick last night. So she's not gonna be able to do anything today. You know, how should she be doing the rest of her week? Right. And so I think that's a big distinction when you are looking for a coach is someone who can kind of look at your life and your circumstances and tailor it to, to you, because, you know, these, the goals that you set shouldn't be kind of set and, as something that, you know, in, in, at the end of the season, when you achieve this, you will have this and you will be that great person, right? Like your coach should be working with you to make your life and your lifestyle around the sport so that you can be the person you want to be now. Right. And then as you're achieving these things, that's just icing on the cake, you know? And so I think a lot of times it can, that distinction is, is tricky. And I think, if you are working with a coach who, you know, is skilled at working with the human too, right. um, versus just maybe the data that makes a really big difference for not for everyone. It's not for everyone, but I think that it makes a big difference for, for folks. You mentioned that you, uh, you, as a result of an injury that you had had some surgery done and you're really having that surgery now. Well, first off, good luck with that. We want you healthy. We want you back into it. Looking at, at futures down the road and looking at other things that you're going to do, you know, your, your your resume is so broad and your resume is so long in so many ways. Barclays, FKT's adventure racing, swim run, everything you've, you've done in there. What horizons do you sort of see for sporting in general? There's your individual experience. Like, I want to go do this, right? Maybe you want to do the five-day, maybe you want to do world championships, whatever it might be. But when you look at the, you live, eat, and breathe the breadth of sport, endurance sport. And so when you think of the Barclays of the world and the one water races, what is your thinking about like endurance sports in general as a, as part of general culture, which, what direction do you think it's heading? You know, I think that it is becoming a lot more, you know, lifestyle for the general public. Right. And maybe the general public isn't doing the one water race. Right. But now the general public, this is something we didn't talk about with One Water, is able to watch the One Water right. race, right? I mean, there was a guy with a GoPro following us every single minute of the race that we were out there. And, you know, to have an event like that live stream so that everyone can watch, you know, we used to all have to hold our breath and count down the days until the wide world of sports showed us the Ironman World Championships. Right. Right. Now you can go to Outside Plus and watch you know, the last five Ironmans that have had pro races in the last couple months. Right. So it's, it's changing to be, you know, more accessible and just, I think planting a lot more seeds in people's head that like, yes, you can, you can do endurance sports and have a family and have a job. Right. And you're maybe you're not going to be at the level that gets invited to race at one water race. Right. Like there's, there's a spectrum there, but you can do some pretty cool stuff, right? And you can see some pretty cool places. And I think that, you know, coming out of the pandemic years too, people realize so much adventure is just in their backyard, right? Like um, network with some people, get some adventure buddies, throw some ideas off the wall and, and see what sticks and then go do it. You know, I think that a little bit more of that kind of, intrinsic motivation with endurance sports is, is happening. And, and that's cool to see. I do agree with that. I think the, uh, I think the technology is catching up to the desire of the audience. 
you know, UTMB, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, they've done, they've really become the model for how to take a long distance event and, and translate it in real time for the audience at home. Uh, Adventure Racing World Series, we saw that over in Africa with, with the work that, that, that Stefan and Heidi did, that you, you have really had a sense with the dot watching and the commentating and all of that. Like the, you're, you're going from, you know, it's funny, I was talking to Rob Howard, who's with sleepmonsters.com, him and I were chatting, mm-hmm. and he was saying how years ago there'd be a race and his deadline to publish the race report was three weeks. Mm-hmm. And now he's like, it's now three <laughs> seconds. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like, like the race. And I, so I agree with you that the, all of the technology is coming together to sort of collapse all that in. Look at now the, the dark zone, for example. And, and I want you to do a commercial for your own podcasting in a second. I do <laughs> want to mention that, but like the dark zone, for example, is that, that this is citizen media, right? I don't, I don't mm-hmm. do this for a living, but I'm able to, to produce a piece of content that people clearly enjoy from the feedback that I get. And I'm a guy sitting in his basement. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the that sport is becoming so much more accessible to the the average viewer, the average listener, the person at home, I think that's a really that's an amazing job. And obviously, the more it's in front of you, the more it feels normalized and enculturated. So it's not uncommon to go know people who do, do things like that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think I mean, to that point, it's like, you know, I meet strangers and, and things like that. They find out what I do and they do. They have, oh, you know, my cousin did this or, you know, so-and-so did that. Do you know? And like, sometimes I do know those people, right? Which is crazy. And it just goes to show you kind of how small the world is, but it's, you know, we're bringing it all together. I think it's a great thing to see what you're doing, you know, with the media and just kind of the Facebook groups, all of that, like the interest and um, you know, I would love to see as ARWS kind of continues to come into the U.S., I would love to see more, you know, just renewed interest and kind of excitement from the everyday racers about like the top teams, right? Like, let's get to know these teams. Let's get to know these characters and these humans and kind of bring them to life because that's how adventure racing is going to grow in the media. That's how teams will get sponsors so that they can do it professionally, right? And kind of give it a go. And we can see how far the sport can go because um, that's that's what it's going to take. Talk to me about your own podcasting experience. Yeah, I think probably pretty similar, honestly. Like the way you started Dark Zone, Brian, was very similar to kind of the beginning roots of, of Iron Women. And um, it was a labor of love many years ago now, I want to say like 2017 is when we started. It's like, it's like six years ago. It was like, it's like 300 yes. years ago in podcasting. <laughs> it was a different lifetime. And, um, you know, it comes out on Thursdays. Uh, I record with my co-host and fellow professional triathlete, Haley Chura. And we interview people all over the endurance sports or women, I should say, all over the endurance sports uh, realm, but focusing in on triathletes. Um, but we we dabble in other sports, too. If there's someone else who we want to talk to and uh, will make us make the time for us, we do. But uh, we have a really good time over there and just, you know, looking to share women's stories in sport and kind of give them a little bit more media where maybe it's been lacking. So you said weekly, is that a 52 weeks a year? You've tried to put that out more or less. Is it a weekly podcast? It is a weekly podcast. We do take a two week break over Christmas and new year. So um, we re we rebroadcast old episodes during that time. So your feed will not go, you know, empty, but uh, yeah, every other week of the year for your trainer time, your treadmill time, whatever you're doing, yeah. uh, you can listen to me chatting in your ear. You, you, you and Haley actually, your, your, your level of work is fascinating to listen to. And it's so solid. It's so good. And definitely 
full endorsement of the dark zone for Iron Woman. Like, like you guys need that. But definitely it's a, it's a great experience. You mentioned how Iron Woman focuses on females in sports, right? And that growth. Mm-hmm. And and you're active in that field. You're active in that in that that part of the adventure racing world, the endurance world. In the in the over the course of your getting on 19 years involved in the sport, how have you seen the growth of women in sport in terms of their own space and being respected as athletes? How has that grown or not grown? What's what's your take on that? Oh, I mean, it's so different. And it's like that question alone just gives me goosebumps because I just start having like, you know, reels playing in my my brain of this last summer of like these great sporting moments of women that are now, you know, front and center for me and everyone else to be seeing. Whereas, you know, the start line of my second 50 miler in some small town, North Carolina, I was standing there, you know, young 20 year old Alyssa standing there. And I had men, right. Tell me like, are you, you shouldn't be standing on this line, like the front, right. Like, and I was kind of like, what, you know, and there weren't many women running right at that time. It was a totally totally different time. And, um, it's just grown more than I ever probably would have believed. And I think that people are really realizing the value, realizing the excitement, realizing the stories in women's sport. And it's, I mean, it's only just begun, which is probably what gives me the most goosebumps. I agree about that. And I think I I, I I do not claim to be an expert in adventure racing history. I try to read up on it and I know what I do know about it. But I think one of the earliest best decisions that the, the creators of the sport made was that they made the decision that in order to be a premier team in any major race, you had to be mixed gender. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and no, I, it makes a big difference. And I, I've noticed a, a, a change in language and discussion. If you if you go back to the older videos, 15, 20 10, more than 10 years ago, the, the joke was that women, women were mandatory gear. You had to go find mm-hmm. a female, right? And, mm-hmm. and you had, and so you had to start trying and find someone. And what you're seeing now, especially through the women of AR Facebook group, which is a very, 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 very strong group. And, and the work that's being done there, that there's this, there's this continued evolution of the sport in which you're going from having women being mandatory gear which was a pejorative negative term, where in reality, there are women-led teams, there are women-dominated teams that are doing very well. And you're seeing that that growth inside the sport. And I, I think that the that early swing at gender equity, it's amazing how that decision all those years ago has rippled down through the decades, where mm-hmm. if, if you were allowed to have single gender premier teams, we wouldn't be having this conversation today, probably, because it would be a male-dominated sport. And, I, and while it's a male-dominated sport on paper in many ways, at least it's built into the bones of the sport that there's gender equity in, in a form that we see there. And so I agree with that. I, I also think too, I, I also love the fact that so many of the, of the leaders of the, of the sport are female, female race directors, co-race mm-hmm. directors playing major roles. I think that's a, I'm, I'm proud to be associated with a sport that of all the sports that are out there clearly is striving and it's far from perfect, right? I don't want to, we should not be patting ourselves on the back too much, but at least it's part of the conversation that we're having here. And I'm proud to be a part of that. And I, and I, and I strive for that with the dark zone. I try very, very hard to have a full, as, as much representation as I could figure out on my own. I try to do that here. Um, yeah, no, I think all the work is be. appreciated. And I, you know, admittedly have been in adventure racing not that long enough enough that I don't know a lot of the kind of historical, right, adventure racing of the the worldly context of it. But I have been present as USARA has been growing and so appreciative of kind of the work that they do. And like you said, the women of AR and just kind of the, you know, focus and 
prioritization of something like that is is really important and I think is going to help make this sport grow and be strong and be around for for a long time. Well, there you have it, folks. Episode number 87 of The Dark Zone, your adventure racing podcast. Thank you to Alyssa for being here. We could have gone for hours and hours and hours, and I wouldn't know where to stop it. So the episode just stopped, ended. She did a great job talking about the role of women in the sport. Where else could you go from there? We're glad that she joined us. Thank you, Alyssa. Good luck coaching Matt. God knows you're going to need it. As we finish up 2023, I want to thank all of you for another great year for the Dark Zone. It's our pleasure to bring this to the adventure racing community. Please go to any platform of your choice, like, click, rate, whatever it is. We're delighted that you're here. Our membership is growing, our subscribers are growing, and it's all because of you and you spread the word about the Dark Zone. We're done for this year, taking off the rest of 2023. We will be back in 2024 with some big stuff, big races. Come along for the ride. We love having you. Be safe and have fun out there.